Again, my name is Ted, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new or this is one of your first couple times with us, we have been going through a sermon series called Plotting a Course as uh, we've transitioned to Traveler's Rest and God has brought uh, some new members, new member candidates. We felt it important to uh, talk about the marks of a healthy New Testament church according to the Word of God. So spent some time in Titus. Now we're uh, looking through uh, some of the Corinthian passages to pick up some of these biblical marks. And today we are looking at the very important aspect and ministry of a local church, which is church discipline, church discipline. So I ask you all, because I'm sure the answers are varied and unique and yet shared, what comes to your mind when I say the words church discipline? Church discipline. Because I am convinced that most Christians, even healthy, good Christians, don't understand biblically what church discipline is. So let's talk about that here for a few moments. In fact, there's five things I want to share with you leading up to our passage today in 1 Corinthians 5. And so the first thing is what I call the big picture, all right? We need to understand that church discipline happens more than we realize. In fact, I would say to you that us sitting in this room today, hearing from God's word, is an aspect of church discipline. Let me broaden your understanding of church discipline. What is the root of the word discipline? Disciple. Who are disciples but students learning a particular skill or area to become an expert, to grow in their understanding? We have to understand that when it comes to church discipline, there's both a positive component that happens and should be happening all the time in a local church. And I would call that formative or preventative discipline. It's the positive aspect. It happens in here, as I said. It happens when I'm meeting with my cell group partner. It happens when I'm in small group. Oh, by the way, it happens when I get up to spend time with God in his word. I'm continuing to grow and be formed by the Holy Spirit through his power in his word as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's also preventative. It's preventing me from stumbling and falling headlong back into the sins that I used to enjoy as a lost person. Then there's a second aspect of church discipline, and that's what we call corrective church discipline. That's, that's what usually pops into our mind and probably did a few moments ago when we think of the words church discipline. That's corrective. That's where as a body of Christ, we lovingly come alongside a brother or sister who has lost self-control and has fallen into the sins of their former self. Raise your hand if you are a parent of a young child, birth to five. Yeah, there's several of you in here. This is exactly what you are doing with your children, is it not? The positive, formative teaching. And then, oh, by the way, hopefully at times when they fall out of line or disobey you, the corrective aspect. And you can write this down. Hebrews chapter 12 is where you want to go to see how our Heavenly Father does this to us. And here's one verse up on the screen from that passage, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So now let's turn our attention to a practical aspect of why corrective church discipline is necessary in a local church. Now, as a church, we are much more than simply a Christ school, right? We are a, uh, an institute of God's redemptive work in taking the gospel to the nations, but even there, we are teaching, we are sharing, 
But a big implication of what it means to be a Christian is to continually learn and grow in our understanding of the gospel and his word. So now let me see your hand if you are a school teacher, current, former, or future. Let me ask you this. Is order important for proper learning? Let me hear the yes. We should all say yes. Absolutely. So this is a contribution by Jay Adams. I forgot to bring the books up here, but Jay Adams wrote a book on church discipline, and it has been for many decades the gold standard of church discipline in the local church. And so this comes from him. You'll see a slide up on the screen. This is practically speaking why discipline is so important. Discipline provides order, which leads to peace, which provides the right environment for learning. And then when threat comes to that order, discipline comes back in and keeps a healthy context. In fact, he says, where there is no peace, there is no learning. Where there is no discipline, there is no order. Where there is no order, there is no peace, and so on and so on. So there's a practical reason why it's so important. Another thing I want to look at before we uh, get into the, uh, the sermon body, what is, we don't talk about this enough, what is the expected posture of every Christian when there is no need for church discipline, for correction? It is self-discipline. The expectation of the Lord in his word is that as believers, we are functioning in a healthy self-discipline, not perfection, right? We're all still sinners. We all sin on a daily basis. But as we sin, recognizing it and quickly asking for God's forgiveness and then applying the gospel truth, rising up as if it never happened and asking God to help us grow in that area. That's the healthy self-discipline that, that happens. That's expected. It's when we get out of that, when we land in a ditch and we're no longer able to self-discipline in this one area, the sin has taken us that we need our loving church to come alongside redemptively, confront us, and rescue us out of that. So self-discipline is the expected default posture, if you will. Another thing I want to cover too, and this is based on the passage that Robert read, Matthew 18 is the standard teaching passage from our Lord Jesus Christ on corrective church discipline. But here is a, a diagram. This comes out of J. Adams' book. If you, if you read it, it's a great short little book that's very helpful. And here is his diagram to help us understand how the Matthew 18 process works in a local church. And the reason it is a cone on its side is because as the process moves, more people are brought into it. So that cone going from narrow to wide represents more people becoming involved in the process. And so as you see, the very beginning of the cone is what I just mentioned. That's the expected posture of self-discipline. That's not in Matthew 18, but it's assumed, it's implied. And then you see the very steps according to what Robert just read us. Uh, the one-to-one, if your brother sins against you, go to him, right? If he repents, you've won your brother, and that's it. It's over. But if he doesn't, then you get someone else, two, one or two other people, and go back. Now, you'll notice those stages are in the category of informal discipline. In fact, in, in the parenthetical there, it's discipling. This is all part of what it means to be a disciple. And I can tell you this goes on all the time. It's when we love our brother or sister enough to come alongside and say, man, uh, you know, I saw you or you shared this or I heard this and lovingly confronting them. Again, bringing Galatians 6, another very important passage you want to write down, helps to keep our heart right as we lovingly confront our brother or sister. But we're willing to go to them. And this happens more than we realize, and it should, and it's healthy. It's part of the church being healthy. But you'll see that double line there in between the two or three and then telling it to the church. That's a huge 
watershed moment where if the person does not repent after being warned by two or three loving brothers or sisters, then it has to become uh, formal, has to become formal. It's going to be now known to many people. And I believe there's two steps in there. It comes to the pastors. The pastors need to, to deal with it wisely. They may go to the individual before sharing it with the church. Who knows? And then, of course, if repentance still doesn't occur, then it comes to the congregation. And the congregation together doesn't vote. We don't vote on church discipline. We obey the word of God. And if need be, we uh, remove, excommunicate that person with hearts broken out of the church. We essentially make their profession and their behavior line up. Right? They're, they might say they're a Christian, but they're not acting like it. They're continuing to, to not repent and stay in their sin. And so we bring reality in, and uh, we'll talk more about that as, as we move on. But I wanted to show you that. And then finally, before we go in, here's a great definition. It's a second excellent book by Robert Chong. I, uh, he was a professor of mine. Actually, both men were professors of mine at different times. And his book is excellent because his church is similar to our church, how we value community and small groups and, and, and strive to do life together as a body through the week in addition to simply meeting on Sunday morning. And so I love his definition and, uh, and, again, how he pictures church discipline, especially working with a small group model. But look how he defines it. God's ongoing, redeeming work through his living word and people as they fight the fight of faith together to exalt Christ and protect the purity of the bride. And for me, that sums up what corrective church discipline should be even though it either hasn't been practiced or is practiced horribly wrong in most of the churches in our context. We want to be biblical. We want to be different. So now we're going to transition to 1 Corinthians 5. So please turn your Bibles to that passage as we look at uh, one of the good passages that help us understand this important ministry. But imagine, if you will, as you're turning there, that I am a flight instructor, and you are taking a class with me on how to fly. We're obviously not going to be getting in the airplanes anytime soon. We're just doing the classroom part. And after giving you a brief overview, like I just did with church discipline, I give you a brief overview on piloting an airplane or, or what this class is going to entail, I start our time together by studying a, an in-flight emergency that led the plane to be on fire and heading to the ground with wings missing. And then, okay, now what do you do in this situation? Imagine if that's where we began, right? Because that's what we're doing by essentially going to 1 Corinthians 5. This is a church that is in flames and going down, right? So essentially, don't forget everything you just heard about Matthew 18, but Matthew 18 gets thrown out the window, and you're going to see why in this situation, in this crisis that is happening in the church at Corinth which helps us to understand the holiness of God and the urgency uh, that we need to act when we have a similar situation as well. And in terms of context, we don't have time to properly uh, do the background and context. Robert gave you some last week on his sermon on membership, but this church was puffed up with pride. You really see that in the first five chapters. They were really prideful. They were arrogant. They didn't think they needed Paul's advice. Hey, we got this, right? It's like the father who's trying to teach his son to uh, ride his bike, and the son's like, Dad, Dad, stop. I got it. And then he proceeds to, to crash into a parked car. That's essentially what we have with the church at Corinth. So here is the big idea. We do this each week, a, the sermon in a sentence. This is my goal and hope for today's passage. Today we will discover four expected convictions that we as God's people must hold to when it comes to the spiritual health and vitality of his body, 
the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the conviction you've placed on our heart to have the courage to teach on church discipline and to practice it, which is not a common thing in our nation today. Oh, that it would be, Lord. It's such a healthy and and beautiful aspect of what it means to be a church and really worship. It is worship. There's worship in this great thing. And we're just talking about the corrective. Even now, you're using this time to form and build and grow us. And we, we pray that will continue, Lord. Help us as a people to care more about what you think than any man. Let us never be motivated as a church to simply attract and please people. But let us always be motivated for your gloriness and your holiness and your kingdom and everything we do as a body, that we would obey every aspect in teaching in your holy word, regardless of the consequences. Let us be wholly sold out to you and not compromise at any point. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time we have. And even as we study this topic, let the gospel be apparent in all that is said, that you could even use a sermon on discipline to work in the hearts of those in this room who do not know you, to plant to water and to harvest. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 5, and, and as I said in the big idea, there's, uh, we're going to discover four expected convictions in this passage. And here is the first one. You'll see it up on the screen. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. So should we. Read with me the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's switching topics. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So a few things that we observe here. Uh, The word actually, right away, that, that original word there, expresses shock on the part of Paul. He is shocked. He is beside himself with this report that has come to. It's amazing that he's waited to chapter five to bring this up. And nonetheless, he shows masterfully skill in in doing that. But you see the problem that's happening in the church. Sexual immorality, that's the word pornea. You you see it a lot in the New Testament. Literally, it means uh, consorting with prostitutes. But in the New Testament, it has a broad, broad application. It's a very flexible term. And really, it means any aspect of of sex, the act of marriage, that is outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. And that is what's happening here. He's applying it to this situation. And he even heightens it by saying, this sin that you are tolerating, pagans don't even do it. And what is that sin? The sin of incest. It appears that a man was in a very uh, habitual, long-term relationship, sexual relationship, with his stepmother. And incest included biological, of course, but also included adoptive relationships like a a stepmother, someone who's married into the family at one time. The word has there, you see that, for a man has, that's a present infinitive. So it's telling us there's a relationship here, an ongoing relationship. But friends, right out of the gates, we have to see something here. The primary focus of the discipline in this passage is not the man's sin. Who is under church discipline in this passage? The church at Corinth. Paul is essentially putting the church over his knee in this passage. That is the real problem. They're not taking sin seriously. 
Now, uh, commentators have speculated as to why they were arrogant and proud about this man's presence in the church. And what a lot of them say, and it's probably true in some regard, is this man probably was a man of great wealth and or standing in the city. Imagine if some celebrity Christian wanted to join our little church, and we were so excited because so-and-so is in our church, but so-and-so had this secret sin that was in violation of God's word, and we turned a blind eye to it because we were so thankful that so-and-so wanted to be part of our little church. That would be similar to, I think, what's happening here. And so they feared man more than they feared God. Their arrogance is the main problem in this entire passage. Their sin. They're the ones under church discipline. So you see here, classic take off and put on language with Paul. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? The word mourn there implies action, right? Their mourning isn't going to be something that is just simply emotional. It's going to lead to some action. It's going to lead to action that shows that they are truly repentant of their sin and willing to do the opposite. And Paul gives them that roadmap. And the next clause, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Excommunication. And that's why I tell you, Paul, you know, it's too late for, for Matthew 18. It's too late, right? This church is in serious danger of no longer being a church because of what they're doing. Paul is encouraging them essentially to stop the bleeding. Remove this man. That is the very first step. Stop being so arrogant and so prideful. Rather, mourn. Very crucial uh, for us to, to see that here. But uh, let's, look at, let's talk about us here, okay? Because I want to tell you something, a little application before we move on to the next one. We live in a Corinthian society. Would you agree? We live in a Corinthian society where sexual immorality is everywhere. It's invading us all the time. And it's so important that we do not make the same mistake as the church at Corinth. Look what David Pryor says here. Hardly a Corinthian convert would have been left uncontaminated directly or indirectly by sexual immorality of one kind or another. Its tentacles would have clung tight and its poisons run deep. We have to examine ourselves right here as a church because of the society we live in, because of how this sin, this grievous sin has affected us. And friends, we have to understand a few things. This is not a gray area sin. This is a black and white Sin. We have to examine ourselves as a body, as a group full of individuals. And, and God's been working that in my heart this week, and I want to share with you and, and ask you to examine it as well. So I will ask the same question that Solomon asks in Proverbs 5, I think. Can a man hold fire next to his chest and not be burnt? No, it's impossible. How are any of us in this room holding fire next to our chest and expecting not to be burnt. So I encourage those of you, those of you who are dating, those of you who are engaged, wait until marriage. God is trying to protect you from a whole host of problems. As we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, that great refrain from the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, God knows how life works best. Don't listen to the culture, even the pseudo-Christian culture in our country. Wait, wait, all right? He has the best in mind for you. Men, Men who are looking at things they shouldn't be looking at, there is no moderation with pornography, okay? If you are struggling, come. We will help you. This is epidemic. It's epidemic in the church. They say half of all men in the church uh, are involved in that, and there's no dabbling with it. There's no moderation, right? 
and I'm going to give you some wisdom. Some, I'm going to put my counselor hat on. I'm going to give you some wise words in terms of pornography. Stop it. Stop it. Come and see me. I will help you with, by God's grace and the power of the gospel to stop that habit, to get it under control. Also, women. I've got to talk to you too as well. I know you're wired differently than we are. We like to look. You like to be looked at, right? Dressed with modesty. Dressed with modesty. Watch any flirting behavior. Uh, be careful. We've got to work in this together. We've got to be a team. So important for you all as well. And then we know we're in a season where, by God's grace, he's providing new members to our church. Several of you are in the candidate process. Don't bring in this type of pornea, sexual immorality, into the church. If you're struggling in any area, let us know on the front end. Okay? Let us know. Bring that up to us. Uh, it doesn't mean we're going to kick you out. We don't want you being part of our church. We're going to help you. Again, church discipline is all about rescue. It's all about redemption because the reality is we all struggle and we're not meant to struggle alone. So I wanted to say those few words before we move on. You'll see on the screen the second, the second of these four expected convictions that we see in the text today. Redemption, I just mentioned it, redemption must always be the goal of corrective discipline. Never punishment. Always rescue, always redemption, with broken hearts. Let's go back to the text and pick up in verses three through five. Paul says, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here it is. So that, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that last verse is really what I want to focus on. Uh, if we were going through 1 Corinthians properly, I'd spend more time because verses 3 through 5 is a very complex, grammatically complex passage where uh, there's, there's so many things going on there. But, and Paul's not talking about some mystical thing here, okay? Like he's going to be there like Yoda, hologram Yoda or something. That's not what he's talking about. He's also not saying he's going to vote by proxy. We don't vote by proxy here at the Church of Billy Ridge. You can't someone, send someone in to vote. Uh, you can't vote over Skype, okay? And Paul would be using Skype, by the way, if it was invented back then. But that's not what he's talking about. I believe Paul has in mind what we read earlier about Matthew 18. Uh, how many of you have quoted where two or more present passage in regards to prayer? Be honest. You weren't wrong. It's not hierarchy. That, that's actually true, and the Bible teaches that elsewhere. But that verse, contextually, is talking about church discipline. We quote it all the time for prayer, but it is about church discipline. It's, it's a law in Deuteronomy where God's saying, don't accept charges except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is essentially saying, hey, when two or more of you gather in this manner, I'm in that. I'm in that decision. When you gather in my name, and I think Paul has that in mind, Either orally, that, that tradition has been taught, or maybe Matthew's already been written at this point. He has that verse in mind. I think he's actually saying, hey, when two or three of you gather in Jesus' name, yeah, I'm one of those two, all right? My vote. He's playing two cards here. The authority of an apostle card, which is huge. We don't have that anymore. And also, he was the father of this church. He started this church. He's essentially giving his vote and he's essentially there through the power of Jesus Christ. But again, I want to focus our time on that final verse. You see there the motive. Deliver to Satan. Satan being the, uh, the instrument of God's judgment. 
in this case. And it's that last step of Matthew 18 that we read. You're now removing that person for the church and considering them a lost person, which is good news. One of the biggest problems in the church in the South are the number of false converts. The worst state you can be in as a human being is to think you have salvation when you don't because you're inoculated to the gospel. It doesn't sting anymore like it's meant to. So when a person by their action is obviously not a Christian and we go through this process biblically or in this case, right off the bat, it's good news. We're now saying, hey, you're lost. You need Christ. You need to repent of your sin. And that's a wonderful place to be. That's what Paul means here. He's not intending that this man die or anything bad happens to his body. And you see that by the very last statement. The goal of this whole thing is so that this guy, by the time Jesus returns at the day of the Lord, will truly be saved at that point. The purpose must be redemption. The purpose must be redemption. And I can tell you that this has to be the case at every level. If it's you going to your brother or sister who you, who you believe is in sin, your heart at that point has to be re- redemption and rescue. Or if it's the final step and the church together is confronting this person in sin, has to be redemption and rescue. And let me tell you, my friends, if we ever have to excommunicate, God forbid that we ever do, our work does not end. Our work begins at that moment. It begins by praying with broken hearts for that individual. Uh, if we ever see them or have contact outside the church, pleading with them to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Redemption begins and doesn't end. It doesn't end. Here's number three. You'll see this again on the screen. Number three, sin in the church puts the sincere worship of Christ at risk. This is the cost. This is what is at stake if we as a church know somebody's in, in terrible, unrepentant sin and we turn a blind eye, we sweep it under the rug, and look at what is at stake, the worship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, us actually being a church for much longer is also at stake. It's also at stake. More, to, more on that to come. Let's read this passage together, picking back up in verse 6. Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know? That little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 6, Paul returns again to the primary violator in this passage. Not the man, the church with their pride, their boasting. Now, at the Richard household, we have two pets. We have a black outdoor cat that actually belongs to like five families. They all think they're his. It's kind of funny. Uh, and then we also have my wife's sourdough starter, her sourdough. Many of you know she's a baker. She bakes for the Hungry Drover. And, she, and we've had this pet for several years. She, she got the starter from, uh, um, what's that flower company? King Arthur Flower Company up in New Hampshire or something, they sent a little starter, and, we've, and she's kept it alive ever since for her sourdough bread. And that's what Paul means by leaven, okay? There's two different things between yeast and leaven. Yeast are the little microbes floating around even in this room right now. You can also buy it commercially at the store, right? And you put, uh, you put them into some flour with some water, and they love to eat. And, and as they eat, they fart. And as they fart... Bread rises. Amen? Who loves bread? Okay. So there's actually two different metaphors here 
They're parallel. They both have to do with leaven. Uh, you know from reading the Bible for several years that uh, leaven is a great metaphor for sin, and it's used often in Scripture. So you see there in, in verse 6, the first metaphor, do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Even the other day, uh, Jen was up at like 5 in the morning. She had her 20-quart mixing bowl full of flour, but and then she takes a little uh, Tupperware jug of leaven, her, our pet, and poured a little bit of it in there. And let me tell you, in no time flat, the yeast was throughout that entire 20-quart pot. That's how quick it is, right? They just run through it. There's no part of that flour that's not going to have yeast invading it soon. That's what they do, and they're the gift of God, right? I love bread. Praise God for yeast. So that's what leaven is. That's what Paul means here. And obviously, the same thing is true in the body. If we allow sin to, to uh, remain unchecked in the body of Christ, known, unrepentant sin then it's, going to just not, it's not going to stay with that one person. It's going to spread throughout the whole entire congregation. And eventually, we will no longer be a church, just like that flower is no longer unleavened. So that's the first metaphor. And then the second one, Paul's still talking about leaven, but now he brings in the, the celebration of the Passover. You all know the story from Exodus. Uh, the Passover was when the lamb's blood, the lamb was perfect lamb, spotless lamb, were, were slaughtered. And the blood was painted over the door of the Israelites. And as the final 10th plague, God sent his death angel to go and kill the firstborn of Egypt. Those who had the lamb's blood over their door, the Jews, were spared. They were saved. What were they saved from? Really important. R.C. Sproul reminded me of this week. They were, not sa- slave, uh, they were not saved primarily from their slavery and their bondage. They were saved from the wrath of God. That's the gospel we have to remember. God came, came to save us from God came to save us from God's wrath. Very important to remember that. And so he brings that, that holiday, that celebration, the most important event on the Jewish calendar, the Passover and the week-long feast of unleavened bread. And I just said it right there. One of the ways in which a Jew would prepare for this is they had to rid their home of all of their leaven, right? Jen can keep our pet leaven alive for many years and even one day give it to her children. People do that. The one at uh, King Arthur was like 100 and something years old. It's amazing. A Jewish woman couldn't do that. She had to get rid of her leaven and then after Passover, start over fresh. It takes about 30 days to turn flour. If you're just using the air, the yeast in the air, it takes about 30 days to form a leaven. Anyways, let's look at the spiritual aspect. Look with me back at, look with me back at verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul's talking consistency here. If we're professing that we are sinless and without Christ, then we should live sinless and with Christ. I I said without Christ. I meant without sin. It has to line up. And so the idea of unleavened bread is sinlessness. And that's what Paul's calling for in the body. Why? Look at the next verse. And this is where the gospel comes in. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How can we live in unrepented sin individually, or as a body, when Jesus has died and bled and suffered and paid the, the price for all of our sin. It would be just like a Jew, halfway through the week of Passover, enjoying the sacrificed lamb. And it's like, oh, I forgot to get the leaven out of my house. Not too late now, right? That would never happen. In the same way, the church has to be consistent in its worship of Jesus Christ. And that's the point he makes. And then he calls upon us in verse 8, let us therefore, 
celebrate the festival. That's worship. Let us worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, not with the old leaven of hypocrisy where we, we, sing, you know, we sing worship songs, but we have secret sin in our heart. Maybe some in here have done that even today. That's, that's not what we do. That's hypocrisy. That is wrong. Let us instead worship as those who have our sins forgiven and we're not living and allowing unrepented sin. And that should get our attention, that we should take that seriously. And that's what he calls here the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The word sincerity refers to bringing a matter into the sun for the light to shine and expose it so that we can see what is real. We can see what is authentic. No more play acting. No more wearing masks. Let us be real. That's what a church has to be, that we love one another so much that we walk through this life with each other. As we stumble, as we struggle, we don't hide it. We bring it before a brother or sister. Ask for help. Call upon the pastors. This is not going to be punishment ever. It's always going to be redemption because we're sinners too. We're sheep also. We get it. Life is hard. It's easy to trip and to fall. And so Paul is calling for a real and authentic church that takes sin seriously, that seeks God's grace and forgiveness, that's not afraid to call upon each other for help, and if need be, confront one another in love. And friends, if we're going to confront each other, Galatians 6, again, but we have to remember something very important. If not for the grace of God, there goes I. If not for the grace of God, regardless of what you might find out that a brother and sister is doing, if not for the grace of God, there goes I. Humble yourselves and know that none of us are above the potential for falling into sin. So crucial, so important. Let's look through a few uh, very important slides I wanted to show you. First and foremost, when it comes to redemption, look at this passage. I missed this earlier. This comes from 2 Corinthians 2. Some people think that this is referring to the individual in 1 Corinthians 5. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. There we get to see the other side of it. When we do turn someone over and they repent, welcome them back in. It's about redemption. It's about rescue. And it may, this passage may actually be talking about this one. Possible that it's something else too. There's evidence there. But as we, we consider this aspect that we just looked at, look at this quote by David Pryor when it comes to the Passover. He says, Just as the Jews had to celebrate their deliverance from bondage with no leaven, so Christians must continually celebrate their deliverance from sin without any compromise with the very things from which they have been set free. That's the tie-in with that. And then here's another great passage that will take us back to John 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And one, again, final piece of application. I said it once. I'm going to say it again with this section is if we don't take God, if we don't take sin seriously, if we don't um, practice this lovingly, as we've learned today, as we see in Matthew 18, and we allow for known sin to exist in the body, eventually we will no longer be a church. We'll no longer be a church. Look at this verse from Revelations 2.5, the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, this is Jesus talking. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Whatever that is, that's not good when the lampstand is removed. And essentially at that moment, we're no longer a church. And I fear, my friends, that across this countryside, across this county, there are places with the word church in their name that have no lampstand. I fear that. In fact, I don't even want to know. I don't think I could handle that knowledge. But there is a fine line between a church and a Christian club. And let us never allow for our lampstand to be removed. Let us be a pure and holy and authentic people of God. One final implication, and this would be a great sermon in its own right. Look at verses 9 through 13. Here's the implication. The church should be in the world, but the world should not be in the church. And when you don't practice church discipline, when you have a false man-centered gospel, when you let people you just met that Sunday morning join the church, you bring the world into the church. And this is what has happened for over 100 years, especially here in the Southern culture. We have let lost people into the church because we've been so hungry for numbers, for bragging rights, for size, for success, that we've gone off on our own, away from the word of God. Let's read this together. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? is Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, there's so much here. We'll have to come back to this one day. There's a lot of passages on judging. What Paul means by judging in this passage, it refers to formally condemning someone and taking disciplinary action. How many churches have this backwards? How many churches are not doing evangelism, are not sharing the gospel with the lost, but are sitting in their holy huddles judging lost people and condemning them for their sexual sin, for all the different things that lost people do? Friends, we have to understand lost people act lost, and we all used to be one. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would still be lost, right? A lost person can't help being lost. They're lost. We can't expect lost people to act like Christians, and that's what Paul is saying. But what the point he's trying to make with them is instead of judging lost people, that this type of judgment has to happen in the body, this loving willingness to confront blatant sin and to deal with it biblically, with humility, and with love according to all that we've already learned uh, today. It's so important. Uh, in the Coast Guard, our jurisdiction, went, and still does today, goes nine miles offshore. So the Coast Guard has almost you know, the most law enforcement power of any organization in the country. Any boat within nine miles of our shore, they can pull over without probable cause. Like, they'll pull you over, and you have to let them board you. You can't say no. That's power. That's jurisdiction. But you get outside of nine miles, the jurisdiction ends. Friends, we don't have jurisdiction when it comes to lost people in, in how they live and what they do. That, that's our mission field. We're called to go be in the world, not of it. You've heard that phrase before. It's not in the Bible, but it comes from this verse and John 17. That's the implication. God's expecting our posture to be one to where we're going out into the world, loving and sharing the gospel with those who are lost. And then in the church, 
practicing what we have learned today for the glory of God. Now, one note, we still have to be prophetically judgmental of the lost. What that means is lovingly warning them of the wrath to come by preaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to judging their behavior, that's out of bounds for us. That's God's business. Our job, as as Paul brings back to the church, is to purge the evil person from among you. That comes from Deuteronomy. So so there's the the four implications that we've been given. So important. And and again, don't miss the evangelistic implication. We don't have time for this. This isn't isn't a sermon on evangelism. But there's such a powerful implication of what God expects our posture to be in the world. And secondly, the other implication we see here, too, is the responsibility for corrective church discipline. Really, all of it is the entire congregation. Not one dictator-like individual, not a select few. It's a process that God's given to all of us as the body of Christ. And that is so important for us today. Finally, look at this final quote from David Pryor. He says, the world is waiting to see a church, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. When we live in victory over the forces that destroy others, then people begin to see that there is meaning and purpose and reason for the salvation we profess to have. Obeying what God has given us when it comes to church discipline makes us shine bright and helps us to be that light on a hill, that city on a hill that should not be hidden. When we don't take God's word seriously and we allow sin to reign, we bring the world into the church and the light goes out. Let that never be said of our church family here. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come back up as we continue worshiping. Of course, you know the invitation is open. Uh, we, uh, we don't have the formal come down the aisle invitation. But as I said, I meant it. If any of you are struggling with anything that we can help you, whether it has to do with the topic we looked at that the first Corinthian church was, or the Corinthian church was struggling with, or any area, please come and let us know. We are here to help. We are here to help come alongside you uh, in any way that we can, whether that's today, through the week, Send us a text, send us an email, and especially, especially if you have uncertainty as to where you stand before God today. Again, thank you for being here. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this important subject. There's many other things I'd love to teach on this morning in your word, many other wonderful marks of a church or aspects of the gospel or stories that I love in your word, but the reality is we have to teach on this one that many uh, give into temptation to avoid. I thank you that you have helped us to cover it. I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone here today, and I'm sure there is, who's struggling with an area of sin and, and find themselves losing more than winning, give them the courage to ask for help, whether it's one of us or a fellow brother or sister in the church Let us, like Paul said, be a church that is sincere and true, authentic, that we would be willing to bring our struggles out into the light, that you can use the body as it's meant to be used to come alongside and to heal and to strengthen. We are all sinners, Lord. We all struggle. 
we all need to operate and live with that grace in mind, that one another grace. Help that to be true of our body and help us to continue to glorify you. Keep us pure. Keep us holy. And Father, guarantee that we will be a church postured in such a way of obedience that the light of the gospel would always shine from us. A city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. Let that always be true of the church at Blue Ridge. We thank you now for your gracious gospel and this time that we've had this morning. Be with us now as we continue to worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.